I want to get right into the text this morning. So we're going to get into the text, and in doing so, we will create some context. We begin in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, where we read, But evil people and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So when you look at the verse right before this one, as well as the one after, you can see that these kinds of men serve as contrasts in more ways than one. First, unlike those who were mentioned in the previous verse, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. These men are a contrast to that. You see that in the opening uh, word that's used here in our English text. But they're a contrast. You have those in verse 12 who are desiring to live a godly life. These individuals are not desiring that. They are proceeding from bad to worse. Perhaps another contrast is found in this. Whereas those mentioned in verse 12 those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus suffer persecution. Perhaps another contrast is this. These individuals do not, at least generally. Why? To use language from Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So these individuals, generally speaking, they may be like the crazy uncles and the weird cousins of the world, perhaps in some cases, or something like that. But at the end of the day, they're not a threat to the world because they love the world. They're like the world. They do the things the world does. So although they might be deemed as strange by the world, at least in some cases, generally speaking, they're not a threat to the world. They're like the world. Even as the world so often craves acceptance from the world, even such ones so often crave acceptance with the world, not wanting to be canceled or ostracized or something like that. Furthermore, as will become clear looking at the next verse, the direction of these men serve as a contrast to Timothy. You'll see that when we get to 2 Timothy 3.14. Generally speaking, evil men do not get better. Their trajectory is typically downwards. Those who are in the mire of deception, especially at this level, we're going to see the kind of men who appear to be most immediately spoken of here are false teachers. Those in that mire of deception generally tend to sink further into it. What happens is they usually batten down the hatches and they're willing to go down with their ship of lies to hold on to their lies. As Douglas Milne wrote, just as people deteriorate in their physical health by bad habits, so people can degenerate in spiritual and moral condition through indulging evil thoughts and behavior. So whereas Christians, by the grace of God, are to go from image to image, right? We're supposed to go to glory to glory. We're supposed to look less like our old selves and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Generally speaking, these individuals go from bad to worse. Now let's look at their identifications. Look how they're identified in the text. We're still in verse 13. They're first called evil people. Evil people. It's worth noting the devil is often referred to as the evil one. You might say that these individuals are those who are taken captive to do his will. To use language from 2 Timothy chapter 2, the end of the chapter, we see such men spoken of there. Such individuals do the works of their father, the devil, to use language from Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 41. They love to do their father's desires, 
John chapter 8, verse 44, and they naturally speak their father's language, which is the language of lies. You see that much implied in John chapter 8, verse 44. Now again, the evil people spoken of here most immediately appear to be false teachers. The evidence for that is found in the description that follows, though we know that evil people are not limited to money-craving, scripture-twisting, self-aggrandizing, speak-it-into-existence, teaching, false-prophesying individuals. Evil people aren't limited just to them. Second, they are described as imposters. Imposters. The word that's used here, only used once in the New Testament, you start looking around in classical Greek, you see that this word can refer to somebody who's a charlatan, somebody who pretends to be something they are not, and even perhaps somebody who engages in some kind of sorcery and enchantments, the word here being connected with a kind of wailing. So these ones that are spoken of here appear to be in some way imposters, charlatans, those who are engaged in some measure of sorcery. Ephesus had no lack of any of those things. If you go through the book of Acts, you see that. Um, Considering the reference of these types of individuals, within the context of the last days, when you look to the last of the last days, I think one commentary noted well, probably sorcery will characterize the final apostasy. Then providing some verses from Revelation. That's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons why those in the miracle-seeking movement are putting themselves in a very precarious position. Not only because of the typical dearth and scarcity of sound doctrine found in those environments, but because they are setting their eyes upon searching after miracles instead of searching the Scriptures. Well, what would these evil men and imposters do? We're told in this verse, they would go on deceiving while they themselves were being deceived. So they are deceiving and they're being deceived. The present participle that's used here for being deceived is in the middle passive voice. You're like, well, which one is it? Middle or passive? Well, the way it works in the Greek, it could be either. It could be middle voice. It could be passive voice. It could be that they've deceived themselves. Right? That would be the middle voice. They did it to themselves. It could be a passive voice. They are deceived by another. And if you had to lean towards one, though there could be truth to both, Um, You would think of them as being deceived by Satan, taken captive by Satan, and as a result, they go about doing the work of Satan, not even realizing they're doing it. They've been lied to, they've bought the lies, and they go spreading lies, not realizing that they're doing so. As those who have been duped, they go around duping others. These ones sell the drugs of deceit thinking they're peddling truth, and they find church-going consumers loving their product. This kind of stuff isn't new. You could look in the book of Jeremiah, for instance. The Lord speaks through Jeremiah and says, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31. One of the things that is so sad and strange is that you so often find professing Christians cheering on such individuals, even nowadays. I liken it in my mind to watching somebody watch a football game, and they're rooting for their team to win. And when their quarterback throws an interception, all of a sudden they leap to their feet and they go, yes, yes. 
You're like, well, why, why are you getting so excited? Because I'm believing. I'm believing that that's actually a touchdown. And then all of a sudden the game continues and they see the other team score a touchdown and they go, yes, yes. You go, why, why, why are you cheering on the other team scoring a touchdown? Well, I'm believing those points are going to be on our scoreboard. But it didn't have, no, the points are on, you can look at it. The points are actually on the scoreboard for the other team. It's already happened. It's there. And so one of the things I'm so amazed by, and we've had some recent examples of this in our world, is that there are professing Christians who are cheering on individuals who have definitively made false prophecies. And there are people cheering them on saying, we still need you, brother. We still need you to share. Share with us. We still want to hear what you have to say. We're still holding on to these things. That's so damaging. It's so destructive. Now, by the way, I'm going to preface what I'm about to say further with this. I'm going to preface by saying, uh, I don't take any pleasure in um, naming names or anything like that. I hope you know that whenever those moments come, they're not done in a gratuitous way. Um, I want to see everybody walking with Christ and truth. That's my heart. I know at the end of the day, I am nothing, but I do know that myself and the elders here have a responsibility for the flock. And when people put themselves on platforms and they could show up in people's computers and in people's living rooms and on people's phones and they have the potential of reaching people in the flock that the elders and I have to give a face-to-face encounter, face-to-face account to Jesus for, then it behooves us to speak. It behooves us to speak. There's one such man who... I, I don't know for how long he's had a big following, but a young man named Chris Yoon... He has about 180,000 YouTube subscribers. He has recently made a number of prophecies concerning the presidential election. Some of his videos have hundreds of thousands of views, 500,000 views, and so on. And so many people have enjoyed listening to him speak. They've enjoyed his manner. They've enjoyed the way that he speaks. Well, he has said things like this as it relates to um, the recent presidential election. He said, reserve throwing your stones at me until January 20th. And then he went on and said, because, because right now, more than ever, the Lord has made it so clear to me what is about to come to pass. He said this kind of thing multiple times. And what did he say? What did he say was going to come to pass? He said that by January 20th, you would see President Trump in the Oval Office and that he would be in there for a second term as of January 20th, reserve throwing your stones. Please know, every statement I'm making right now is not of a political nature. I'm referencing that because that's what he referenced, but we're talking about people like that who make statements like that. He would even say things, it's not uh, 2024, it's right now in the next couple of weeks. He would even say things like this, the end date is January 20th. More about him in a moment. Kenneth Copeland, a man who is sadly no stranger to false doctrine and false prophecies. This is the man who, on top of all of his other erroneous teachings, and there are many, I've mentioned quite a few of them to you, he was the man who recently claimed to blow away the coronavirus and stands in the stead, supposedly, of professing Christians and then 
we, those who would reject such a one and say, whether it's the hypocrisy of his behavior or the erroneous nature of his teachings or the false prophecies that he has given, he does not represent biblical Christianity. He represents those who are those that Christians are warned about in biblical Christianity. Well, he said with regards to the election in a rather disturbing um, event to watch, he said the Associated Press said that Joe Biden is president. And then he proceeded to have a very awkward laughing fit. And he proceeded to lead, as it were, everyone in a very awkward laughing fit for an awkward amount of time. And then he said, when that laughing time was done, yeah, that's right. He's going to be president and Mickey Mouse is going to be king. Well, just like he said in the name of God, or in the name of the Lord, I don't remember how exactly he said it, that he blew the breath of God and he blew the coronavirus away, and that was a lie. Even so, he lied yet again and was proven to be a false prophet. Yet, when you look at his Facebook or you look at his YouTube subscribers, hundreds of thousands of people still subscribe. It's not as though all of a sudden it went down to zero and people said, you know what, this is clear. This man is a false prophet. Let us leave. The strange thing, the strange thing, very Jeremiah 5.31, people cleave to it. And they're like, no, I'm holding on, Chris. I'm holding on. I'm not giving up faith. No, I'm going to hold on to these prophets. Why? Why would you hold on to a false prophecy? Don't treat a false prophecy like it's the word of God. And don't think the God of heaven is okay with you holding on to a false prophecy as though it's the word of God. I look at these people, many of whom are likely brothers and sisters who are deceived in the comment section. And I'm like, why? Is there not a pastor who's crying out to you and saying, don't follow such ones. Don't follow such ones. Chris Yoon, for instance, right, in an earlier video, talked about the great wealth transfer that was coming in 2021 to 2024. And you know if you have at least a cursory understanding of false prophets and false teachers, they're always talking about the great wealth transfer. You could always find someone who's talking about there's going to be a big wealth transfer. And he even made a huge statement, a pretty big statement, declaring that people were going to, in a very general way, that people were going to get a lot of wealth and a lot of money. It is greatly troubling. Greatly troubling. Um, somebody said God is using you to help us, to Chris Yoon. Somebody said we are holding on. I just don't understand why professing Christians feel as though they have to be tightly tethered to false prophecies as though it's an act of being faithful to God. In some cases, people were made to think that their desperate need of the hour is to hear a word from God not through the Scriptures, but something fresher. Something that's for the moment. And you get this kind of thing over and over again in the prophetic circle. Chris Yoon, for instance, after apologizing for getting the date wrong, and after doubling down on his revelation that President Trump would somehow become president in this term, later goes on to say, more than ever, we need prophecy now. To which I say, why? Has the word that is a lamp unto our feet stopped burning? So that we don't know where we're going without something fresher? Has the light 
that is a light into our path stopped shining? Now again, these people, outside of these statements, have made erroneous statements in other areas as well. The earlier one that I had referenced from Chris Yoon, for instance, he had said, if you never had the wealth before, he, talking about God, is going to transfer all that to those who have been faithful. It's a pretty big statement. So do you fit that category? Have you never had the wealth before? Well, Chris Yoon says to you, if you've been faithful, you're going to get the wealth. So what I'm saying is, you have false prophecies overtly identified. But you also have adjacent erroneous teachings so often accompanied with such individuals. And then you have such individuals saying things like what Chris Yoon said, the need of this hour is prophecy, more of this, as though the lamp of God's word has stopped burning. And what I want to do is I want to give you some biblical perspective from the chapter in which we're studying. So what I want to do, even though we're going to study, Lord willing, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 next week, because I think it's pertinent in our consideration right now, we're going to jump to that verse for the moment, to those verses, and I want to make a couple of points. In verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy 3, we read the following. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I want to read that to you again, verse 17, and I want to read it to you from a very literal rendering of the Greek there. So a very literal rendering of the Greek would be something like this. It would be so that that man would be fully equipped, so that the man might be complete, having been fully equipped toward every good work. Notice, what is Paul telling Timothy that will completely equip the man of God for most good works? No, for every good work. What is he saying will do that? The Scriptures. That's what he's saying. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for the things described in verse 16 so that the man of God, most immediately, that would be somebody like Timothy. Or you, you apply it by extension to a pastor, somebody who stands in the pulpit teaching and preaching God's Word. It's the Scripture that makes such a one adequate, complete, equipped for some good works, for every good work. So let's just start there. And as a covenant document, you could say that this has application to all the covenant people of God by extension. So that every son or daughter of God can be made complete and adequate for every good work. How? Is Chris Yoon right? Is the need of the hour prophecy outside of the Word of God? Or is the Word of God saying what's needed for every single good work so that the man of God might be complete is the Word of God? I mean, that doesn't negate what you see in the book of Revelation and what might happen, you know, in, in the days ahead or something like that. It just says that what we need, the baseline of our expectation, is found in the Word of God. It's found in the Word of God. And I want to take it a step further. When you think of what pastors are called to do, right? So this would be for Timothy most immediately, by extension pastors, but as a covenant document, you know at some level it has application for all the people of God. But think about it this way. The pastor's responsibility is to what? Ephesians 4. Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. 
So if Scripture is sufficient for the pastor's equipping, and the pastor has the responsibility to equip the saints, the same Scripture that is sufficient for the pastor is sufficient for the parishioner. You could even go a step further. You could say, what is the prescription for the pastor's equipping is the prescription for the flock's feeding. The Word of God. The Word of God. So I think it's important for us to be tightly tethered to the Scriptures to guard against such deception regardless of where it comes from. They can come from a whole bunch of places. There could be people who are in that movement and they're just getting taught by people. People are telling them, I'm going to teach you how to prophesy. Come to my school. I'll teach you how to prophesy. And they may really love Christ and maybe they're a new believer and then they sit under this stuff and they get so confused and by the grace of God, they come out of it. And then there are some who are so entrenched in it that they're willing to go down with the ship because they know they've got a following. Lie or not, people are watching, people are paying, I'm going down with the ship. Not even realizing they're going down with the ship. So there could be people on, on, on all spectrums there. There could be some people who like, don't even realize what they're caught into, and they love Christ, but they're confused. And there could be some people who are charlatans and imposters. But nonetheless, our responsibility is to you. And the encouragement there is to be tightly tethered to the Word of God. All Scripture is profitable. So that the man of God might be complete, equipped, sufficient for every good work. All right, back to the text. In verse 13, we're told that um, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And now we have a contrast, yet again another contrast. In verse 14, we read the following. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. All right, remember earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, I told you those two Greek words that began the sentence... Su de, you, however. And I said this is not an aimless exercise in linguistics, but an aid in interpretation. Because when you read those words in our English text, like you, however, you should see them as though they're underlined, italicized, or bolded. So having said what he said in verse 13, Paul is saying to Timothy here, you, however, they're going to proceed from bad to worse, but you are not like them. You are not like them. Timothy's route, you could say, was not their slope. Their path was a downward spiral. Per the language here, Timothy's path was to continue. To continue. The Greek word here translated as continue is a Greek word that essentially means to abide. Abide. Stay the course. Abide. So abiding would be continuing. Instead of being carried away, drifting further with every wind and wave of doctrine, to use language from Ephesians 4.14, Timothy was to abide anchored in the truth as one who is grafted into the vine who is Jesus Christ and abiding in His Word. What was Timothy to continue to abide in? Well, when you look at the prepositional phrase that follows, that answers the question. In the things you have learned and have become convinced of. Okay, so Timothy was to continue in the doctrine he had learned. We saw that in 2 Timothy 3.10. Paul said, you have followed, and first thing he noted, my doctrine. And he saw the life that backed up that teaching. So Timothy had learned truth. He didn't need to chase the lies and the um, myths that were swirling around in Ephesus. Remember, that was what was going on in Ephesus. 
Don't give heed to myths. We saw that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 4, myths and endless genealogies. I think Donald Guthrie put it well when he wrote, In contrast to the false teachers, with their constant endeavor to advance something new, Timothy may be satisfied with what he has already received. So unlike the previously mentioned individuals who were always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth, Timothy needed to abide in that truth. Remember what Jesus said, he told the Jews who had believed in him, he said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. John chapter 8, verse 31. You might say that a, a true disciple's interest cannot be likened to a shooting star that burns brightly for a moment and then fades. Rather, one might imagine a candle that is miraculously preserved to keep burning. That's what a disciple looks like. So despite the winds and waves of opposing ideologies and philosophies, disciples of Christ, they remain steadfast, anchored to the truth. And consequently, as they are, they receive constant nourishing, nourishing from the vine who is Jesus Christ. And for Timothy, it wasn't only the material he had learned, it was material truth that he had become convinced of. There was conviction there, right? It wasn't just intellectual knowledge accrued in his brain. They were things that he held tight to, and he believed Timothy believed the gospel. He believed the truth of Jesus' resurrection. He believed the truth of Jesus' substitutionary death. And he had conviction regarding these things. It wasn't just intellectual. He held on to it very personally. He recognized the gospel and the truth inseparable to it as true. I, I love here the added and important reminder that Paul includes. Because it might take us by surprise at first. Notice what he tells Timothy. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Knowing from whom you have learned them. You're like, well, why is that important? What does it have to do with anything? Why do you have to recall the ones from whom you learned this truth, Timothy? And who ex- exactly is in view? It appears that the A word that's used here for whom is plural. There are some debates about that, whether it should be singular or plural with regards to um, manuscripts. It appears to be plural, and that would make sense within the context, because in 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, Paul spoke about Timothy having followed him. So Timothy had learned truth from Paul. But we're also going to see in the very next verse that Paul speaks of Timothy having learned the sacred writings from the earliest days of his life. So Eunice and Lois are likely in view as well, Timothy's mother and grandmother. And you might say, well, why is that important? Why did he have to recall such ones? Well, there would be additional encouragement, it appears, for Timothy to remember that the ones from whom he learned truth were ones who lived out that truth. You think about it, he saw firsthand the Apostle Paul staying the course for Jesus despite all the suffering that he endured. You think about Eunice and Lois, and Paul describes them as having a sincere faith. Not a perfect life. (laughs) I'm sure Eunice and Lois did not have a perfect life, perfect lives. But they did have a sincere faith. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. A little bit more about that in a moment, because I think there's a lot of encouragement to be found for us there. But first, let's look at verse 15. And that from childhood... You have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. 
Okay, there's a, there's a few things here that I want to call our attention to. Um, first, I want you to notice the word childhood. Childhood. And that from childhood. The word that's used here for childhood is an inflected form of the word brephos. Does that word ring a bell to some of you? Brephos. It's the same word that's used to describe John the Baptist when he was in the womb. Luke chapter 1, verse 41. Luke chapter 1, verse 44. It's the same word to describe Jesus when he's outside of the womb in the very next chapter, in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, and Luke chapter 2, verse 16. Why is that important? Well, in a world that is being indoctrinated with all kinds of uh, ideologies that accompany leftism, the abortion debate is one of those um, is one of those things that are just seeping in to professing churches. And I think it's important for Christians to understand that according to the Bible, a brephos is a brephos, inside of the womb and outside of the womb. John's identified as a baby inside of the womb. Jesus is identified as a baby outside of the womb. So this word, so what does that have to do with this verse? Well, the word that's used here is an inflected form of brephos. It affords us the opportunity to be reminded of that. Now, suffice it to say, this language does not give a precise date as to when Paul is referring to. There's quite a a breath for brephos. Um, But it does suggest that Timothy's instruction in divine truth began at a very early point in his life. Now, second, when Paul wrote, you have known the sacred writings, he is referring to the scriptures. And although Paul and others like Peter recognized that contemporaries were writing scripture, more about that next week, Lord willing, this designation, sacred writings, was likely a reference to the Old Testament scriptures that Timothy would have been taught from his childhood, from his mother, Eunice, from his grandmother, Lois. Oh, how these women provide great examples for parents and grandparents alike. You know, I mean, they didn't write a book on family devotionals or something like that. But you might say they just opened the book, if you will. (laughs) They got around Timothy, and they opened the book, as it were, and they let him know what the sacred writings said. And one of the things that can be so uh, challenging for parents is that you could think, you know, I'm not equipped to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do a devotional with my family. I don't know how I'm going to read the scriptures. I can, get, I can you know, gather the kids around and do a 45-minute verse-by-verse exposition. Please don't think you need to. I'm all for every one of you growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But half the battle, so to speak, is just getting the book open. Just getting around with the family and just opening up the Word of God together. Don't feel condemned if you haven't been there. Many Christians who love the Lord Jesus Christ have struggled in that area. But you want to come by the grace of God to a place of commitment where you just get around the word of God together. And some days you might have glorious insights to share with the family. And some days maybe you don't have much. But you let the word of God do the work. It doesn't diminish our responsibility to try to give the sense of it. It doesn't diminish that responsibility. But nonetheless, our confidence is not in our giving the sense of it. Our confidence is in the power of the word of God, making the sacred writings known, telling the story, letting it be known. Matthew Henry noted, the age of children is the age to learn. And those who would get true learning must get it out of the scriptures. They must not lie by us neglected, seldom or never looked into. 
Uh, Charles Spurgeon, thinking about his youth, he said, I am sure that in my early youth no teaching ever made such an impression upon my mind as the instruction of my mother. Neither can I conceive that to any child there can be one who will have such influence over the young heart as the mother who has so tenderly cared for her offspring. He goes on and he says, Never could it be possible for any man to estimate what he owes to a godly mother. Certainly I have not the powers of speech with which to set forth my valuation of the choice blessing which the Lord bestowed on me in making me the son of one who prayed for me and with me. Now, so as not to leave um, fathers out, it's worth noting that Spurgeon in his biography, he did include some instruction that I think is helpful for both parents. He did go on to say that he was um, privileged with godly parents. He said that he was, quote, watched with jealous eyes, scarcely ever permitted to mingle with questionable associates, warned not to listen to anything profane or licentious, and taught the way of God from his youth up. So I just want to encourage the parents in here, grandparents as well, the Eunices and the Loises, and the ones who won't make the mistake that Timothy's dad made. Because Timothy got his learning from Eunice and Lois. And Charles Spurgeon's account here, I think, gives us some good encouragement for fathers as well. I want to encourage you, family. Open the Bible with your family. Do it tonight. If you haven't done it in, in weeks past, don't worry. Don't worry. Today is a new day. Get together. Open the Word of God. If you're a husband, do it with your wife. Even if the kids are out of the house, right? Maybe they've grown up, they've moved on, do it. If you're, if you're alone, if you're a widow, get on the phone with a sister in Christ and pray together. Whatever it might be. If you have a family, gather the family around, open the Word of God together. Whatever it might be, whatever it might be, in so much as you have people around you that could be a godly help to you and people that you could be a godly help to or people that you have a responsibility towards, get with some people tonight and open the Word of God and let the sacred writings be known and let the Word of God be heard. I encourage you in that. Um, third, I want you to notice what the, the Scripture tells us here um, about the Scriptures. Paul writes that the Scriptures are able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation. Um, the participle that's used here, which translated, um, uh, which are able, which are able, that um, participle that's used here speaks to the power of the Scriptures. The scriptures are powerful enough to bring a person from spiritual death to spiritual life, accompanied by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, of course. They can mightily work, the scriptures can, in the human heart, in the human conscience, in the fallen mind. They are alive and they are powerful. They are sharper than any double-edged sword. And what does Paul say here that they are able to do? He says they are able to give wisdom. What kind of wisdom is being spoken of here? Most immediately, the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So again, here, most immediately, the Old Testament scriptures would be in view. And you could start asking yourself, well, how can the Old Testament scriptures um, help one become wise into the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus? Well, I think there are a few ways to answer that. Through the law of God, found in the sacred writings, a person can come to see their guilt before a holy God. Paul told the Galatians, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. 
Through the teaching of the Old Testament, a person can come to see that the means by which a person is made righteous in the sight of God is through faith. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Um, Through the teaching of the sacred writings, a person can come to see the unique fingerprint of the Messiah, the one which was perfectly matched by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who was born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He was born in Bethlehem in accordance with Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He was of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, verse 10. He would be of the line of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. He would be preceded by a messenger. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. Malachi 3, 1. He would do great miracles and perform great healings. Even as Jesus told the disciples of John the Baptist to go tell him. You could look at Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. He would come riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. In fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He would be portrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. He would be rejected, just like the scripture said he would be. Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24. He would be forsaken. Psalm 22, verse 1. His hands and his feet would be pierced. Psalm 22, verse 16. His garments would be divided. Verse 18, and men would cast lots for his clothing. Verse 18 of that same verse. He would suffer as a substitute, as a sacrifice for sinners. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6. He would be cut off from the land of the living. He would die. Isaiah 53 verse 8. His persecutors would make his grave with the wicked. Isaiah 53 verse 9. Yet he would be with the rich in his death or burial. Isaiah 53 verse 9 also. And he would rise from the dead. Psalm 16 verse 10. The scriptures testify that Jesus is the promised Christ. The scriptures, the sacred writings are able to make one wise into salvation because they show us that we are sinners through the law of God found in it. They show us that righteousness comes through the instrumentation of faith and they show us that the unique fingerprint of the Messiah is identically matched in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures are able to make one wise. You've got to love the language here. To salvation, and even here, how? Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So I close this morning by saying, receive then, if you haven't yet, the wisdom of the Scripture concerning salvation. Leave the procession of men and women walking towards the precipice of the mountain of life on earth, thinking they could jump to the other side by human effort. The gap cannot be bridged by works. Why fall into the pit of God's unending righteous judgment and punishment when you could safely make it to the other side by trusting in the one who bore God's righteous judgment on behalf of all who believe in him for the forgiveness of sins? As the Proverbs say, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. If you haven't already turned from that path of sin, turned from that path of self-righteousness, that keeps people blindly walking off of that cliff's end and look to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one through whom men and women can come to the Father. There is no other way. Agreeing with the revelation of Scripture, seeing Jesus as Messiah, receiving then as Savior. This faith rests upon Jesus Christ.
doesn't rest in work doing, but in Jesus. And one final encouragement. In light of this passage, for those who are in Christ Jesus, you might ask the following question. How does this passage fit into the encouragement that Paul is providing to Timothy? Well, in the previous verse, in verse 14, Paul reminded Timothy from whom he had learned the truth. And now in verse 15, he was reminding Timothy of how long he had been acquainted with the truth. In other words, Timothy had a lot of blessings that accompanied his life. He had the honor of learning truth from a mother and a grandmother who had a sincere faith. He had the honor of following the Apostle Paul, one whose words matched his life. He had the honor of knowing the Scriptures from a young age. And Paul was telling Timothy, be encouraged by that, essentially. You know, continue, continue, but continue by remembering the privileges and the honor that you have had. I don't know about you, but I know in my life, when I think back to some of the great relationships that I've had in pastoral ministry, when I think back to um, Pastor Jim Banks, entrusting me with uh, this old, ancient, <laughs> looked ancient, commentary that he had in his, uh, in his home from, uh, from, from an old commentator. And it was, it was an old one. I remember being in his house in Pennsylvania and him taking me into the basement, showing me his books, and giving these commentaries to me and just encouraging me, essentially saying, you are one who is um, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I just give these to you as a, a token of my trust in the ministry that God has called you to. And I think about that, and it strengthens me in the moment. I think about my dad. I think about being outside on a Saturday and seeing him before getting ready to preach on that Sunday and asking me, where are we going to be tomorrow? In Luke? Yeah, Dad, we're going to be in Luke. He's like, yes. And it gets me fired up. I think about small Bible studies around the table in years past. I think about Friday night services in here with brothers who have gone home to be with the Lord. I think of people who have been in this church, some of whom have um, gone on or moved. And I look back at the blessings that God has accompanied my journey with, and I feel strengthened. So while my confidence at the end of the day is in the Word of God and the person and work of Christ, you look at these blessings, and all of a sudden you just feel encouraged to stay the course to get to the finish line. And I think that's part of what Paul's doing here with Timothy. And perhaps in some of those recollections, you feel the same way in this moment. So maybe you, may you be encouraged. Continue. Abide in the truth you have learned. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is truth. We thank You, Heavenly Father, that it is able to make one wise unto the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Thank You, Heavenly Father. Uh, I think of Psalm 19, how David said that your word makes wise the simple. And Father, we so often find ourselves in need of your wisdom, Lord. We are, as it were, leaky vessels. So Father, we come to you, the one who gives us fresh water from above, as it were, as you open up your word to us, and we are fed, and we are watered, as it were, and we are strengthened for the journey ahead of us. And Father, as we do, as we seek to continue May you help us to be discerning so that we would not be taken in with the deception that accompanies deceivers, to use language from verse 13. And may you help us, Heavenly Father, to be rooted and grounded in your truth, continuing and abiding in it. 
And Father, may we walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, of uh, Eunice, of Alois, entrusting truth to others. And so that even as we look back in our lives at the great honor that we've had to be around um, people who have spoken truth and lived truth, may you help us, Father, to be such ones to others. So that perhaps in the memories of others, for the glory of God, um, we might be those who have communicated truth and lived it out. So, Father, may you do these things all to the end that you might be glorified and that Jesus might be exalted. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.